Well, it's so good to be with you, and I just want to thank you for praying for the youth camp this last week. That's such an awesome time with them. Um, I mean, it's obviously, as I said, a very active time, and, uh, but I got an opportunity to spend a lot of time with our young people, and then there were six other churches represented there, so it was extremely exciting to be with those young people. I had occasion to have these meals, you know, lunch and dinner with the young people. One uh, particular one was with a, a group of middle school girls, and uh, <laughs> we had a great time. It was just a Q&A with them and their youth leader, and over breakfast or over lunch, we um, sort of entertained their, their questions, and it was, it was about like a little ordination. I mean, these girls were getting after it, and they were not contrived in their questions. They, they were serious questions, things like you know, they wanted to know about the problem of evil, like if, if God created the angels holy and he created mankind in untested holiness, then how is it that evil came about? And I'm thinking, that's never been solved. <laughs> and so uh, we had a sweet time to discuss important things about the Christian life. One particular girl asked, so we've talked about cultivating and nurturing humility before God's word and trembling at it. How do we do that? How do we actually cultivate that? Because at my age, she said, I, I just don't know, you know, if I understand what that means and the testing that's coming, I, I want to be ready for it. And I just thought, you know, I love the camp that we put on because the churches that come there, the, they're like-minded churches. And of course, there are all kinds of unsaved kids there. So the gospel is going forth and we're spending time with uh, kids who've never heard the truth, whose families are broken, or even church kids who've heard the truth all their life, and they're just not interested. And at the same time, the leaders are, are uh, focused, highly focused on bringing the truth each week. And it's not like the camps I went to. There are 12 breakout sessions in this camp, besides the main sessions, of a variety of subjects. And uh, the kids love them. They absolutely love them. They're well-attended sessions, and, and they, um, in terms of what they pick, uh, the subjects are not easy, but uh, they're right from God's Word, and the kids love it, and they tell me that each week. So what's your favorite session? And they'll tell me they went to such and such session on the science and the Bible, and they're just loving it. So thank you for your prayers. It was just an exciting, exciting week. I preached on servants of whom the world was not worthy, kind of took that Hebrews 11 passage and just looked at various characters in the Bible. At the tail end, I wanted to do the mes a message on Judas, just sort of leave them with that last message, a warning about what happens when you squander the opportunities of the gospel. And again, just the, just the clear, piercing thinking of these young people as uh, at the end, one of them came up and said, so pastor, how is Judas a servant of whom the world is not worthy? <laughs> I'm like, whoa, you're right. He doesn't really fit the title, does he? I'm going to have to change that. So... She was just on it, and uh, they're thinkers. They take the Word of God. They drink it in. I love that. I love being there, and so thank you for your prayers. Well, as you know, we're in the study of Luke, so Luke chapter 13, let's dive right into it. You remember, we're following Jesus in his journey toward Jerusalem, and this is riveting, particularly today as Jesus follows up what just happened in the synagogue. You remember last week, he follows it up with... An interesting twin parable sort of moment. I want to introduce this by talking about a few things that are tendencies in evangelicalism. This would be important for us to think about. Throughout church history, there have been seasons when, when Christians have believed that, that the advance of the gospel and through the advance of the gospel, we can somehow usher in the kingdom. We can usher in or compel the second coming of Christ. And Sometimes believers have interpreted times of cultural prosperity and efforts at world peace as sort of the Christianization of the world, and therefore proof that the gospel's global dominance was, was both visible and imminent, about to happen. And of course, the problem is that there have been other very dark seasons of human history when, when world wars just decimated entire nations and the future was a lot more bleak. Such times have brought not only an awareness of the kingdom of Christ that it has obviously not come yet, but also that the gospel doesn't always advance in the way that we would like or that we would expect. And when the church hasn't been careful about letting the scripture tell us what God is doing at any given season, rather than our own revivalistic sort of wishful thinking, 
It has always led to confusion about end times. It's led to confusion about the power of the gospel. It's led to confusion about how we evangelize the culture around us. When the world seems to be at peace and prospering, the church has tended to see it as a sign that that the gospel influence is well on its way to ushering in the kingdom. And that's why sometimes you have these views of the end times, like postmillennialism or reconstructionism or theonomy. These are the ideas that, hey, we're, we're supposed to take back the authoritative seats of society in government and these official places and just Christianize everything and dominate, and then Christ will come. It's in those seasons, however, that we're vulnerable to zealously helping the gospel along with efforts to speed up its momentum, to somehow help it in ways that that isn't going fast enough for us. We interpret the influence of biblical morals on a society as some sort of universal sign that the promise of the kingdom has begun to unfold. I mean, literally, on the earth. So we we, we need to get alongside and help God by fueling these revivals, by involving the church in political movements and social agendas, and mobilization efforts to to sort of amass financial and human resources and sort of get this global dominance of Christianity uh, on the move. Nations are defined as being Christian and therefore part of God's effort to usher in the kingdom despite, listen, despite the absence of true repentance and faith on the part of that nation's subjects, on the part of individuals. In seasons where the gospel has flourished, kings and empires have at times become arrogant, thinking they have some kind of national power to convert the world. Years ago, I read the circumnavigation uh, biography of Magellan, circumnavigating the globe in the exploits of Magellan. It's very interesting, the, the influence of British rule at the time, and then Spanish rule, which, of course, he sailed for Spain, though he was Portuguese. Bottom line is that he went to the islands in, in Asia, and when he arrived, because they were accepting of his form of worship, he arrogantly believed that that meant he was Christianizing the islands. And he got himself mixed up in with those natives, and it ended up costing him his life. It was an arrogance. It was sort of this idea that we, we bring in the kingdom through, through this, um, this control of people through governmental influence or a king state or, a, or a, a, a theocracy, that somehow the crown in, in Europe was going to rule every heart on the globe and Christianize it. It cost him his life. The same tendency surfaced during the late 1800s when, when missionaries from our country confused the gospel with the noble desire for peace worldwide. Everybody wants peace worldwide. I do. Absolutely. But it became sort of infused into the missionary mindset and, and confused some people. Sidney Gulick was one of those. He was an ordained pastor from Brooklyn, New York. He became a missionary to Japan. But instead of staying focused on what God was doing in the gospel, Gulick spent most of his ministry trying to bring peace between Asians and Americans. That's where his heart gravitated. And after returning to the United States after 25 years ministering there, it was 1913 when he came back, and Gulick was, was grieved to find this growing animosity and discrimination and resentment against Japanese Americans on the part of American culture. And after the passing of the Immigration Act of 1924, which which literally halted immigration to the U.S. from countries that were undesirable, quote-unquote, Gulick decided that the most productive way to encourage international understanding was through the children. So what did he do? He, He formed a committee on world friendship among children, And in 1927, very, very strange, his first project was to organize the sending of American dolls to Japan for its annual doll festival. There was an overwhelming response from from the American public. They sent literally almost 13,000 blue-eyed American dolls to Japanese schools, and it had this accompanying letter professing friendship. The Japanese warmed to it initially, and they sent uh, a special Japanese doll to every state 58 of them back to the United States, one for each state and a few extras for those with more of the population. And those friendship dolls toured the United States before they were taken back to their respective state. This was supposed to demonstrate peace between cultures. This was supposed to be missionary work. 
But as you can imagine, at the outset of World War II, those dolls, especially the ones from here sent to Japan, were burned and stabbed as the enemy. Such times confuse people about God's work, what he's doing, what the gospel is doing. When the world has been at war all over the globe, there's global economic uncertainty, and the church and the gospel are rejected by entire nations and cultures. And at those times, God's people can sink into despair. They can lose hope, as if God is not on the move. And they're just as vulnerable as those times when it's successful in terms of national peace. We're vulnerable to trying to help God with the gospel. We're vulnerable to looking around for some sign that Christianity still has an influence in society. And when we get fearful that it isn't, we fall into the trap of helping the gospel along. And in those troubled seasons, we try to make the gospel attractive. We make it socially acceptable. We bring a message of compassion for those who are suffering, which is a great message because it reflects the heart of God. But we try to pique people's interest in the gospel through our size and our cultural influence. And so, therefore, you have social gospel movements, pragmatism, megachurch movements, etc., etc. You say, well, did they have any similar confusion during Jesus' ministry? Absolutely, people were confused. John 6 tells us that thousands of people who were miraculously fed by Jesus on the hillside wanted to install him violently as king, crown him right then and there. They didn't understand that God was going to do something else through Christ, through his death. They saw him as a savior to their economic struggles. On the other hand, you had the Jews. They were claiming... A whole other thing. They saw that people didn't believe in Jesus. They didn't believe in Jesus, and they used it as proof that he's not the Messiah. That's the very thing they said. You can't be the Messiah. You don't come through Israel. The leaders of Israel don't believe in you, so you must not be the Messiah. And they told the crowds that, and even the crowds were believing that. Oh, he he may do miracles, but not everybody's believing him, and and the Messiah is going to be this global sweeping dynamic, so you must not be him. With so many rejecting Jesus as Messiah, they used it as proof that he's not the Messiah at all. And that's why in John 6, 44, Jesus says, no, you misunderstood. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. You don't come to me because you don't believe. But don't worry, that doesn't mean I'm not the Messiah. It just means that the Father hasn't drawn you because you are a rejecter and he is hardening you in justice because of your pride. So there were times in Jesus' ministry when he reminded his people that the work of the kingdom, the spread of the gospel until Christ reigns in glory, it should be viewed through the grid, not of human circumstances, but understood through the grid of how God defines the gospel work. What is God doing in the gospel, regardless of what's going on around us? And that's what we have here in these these two very short parables that Jesus tells this crowd in Luke 13, 18 to 21. These are parables about what the kingdom is like. And in these two brief sort of kingdom footnotes, we're reminded of some things, very important things to remember, beloved, so that we have hope and we never despair. And, you know, there were lots of people in the beginning of this country who thought, this is it, the kingdom's coming in, we're going to usher it in. America is, is this great gospel influence to the world. Everything's wonderful. God has smiled upon us. Yeah, well, there are all kinds of nations in human history who thought the same thing when they prospered. I remember the, the British South Africans thought that they were the messianic nation when they defeated the tribal peoples there a couple hundred years ago. Lots of people believe they're God's people when things are going well. But these parables remind us of some very important truths. Number one, global blessedness of God's kingdom. Yes, it is absolutely certain. It is fixed. The earth will be filled with the glory of God when he has finished all the work he's purposed to do. Yes, it will come. Yes, it is unassailable. It cannot be stopped. It is powerful. There is a fullest expression of that kingdom coming when Christ reigns on the earth. We don't bring it in. God does, and he does through his purposes being carried out. And another thing these parables remind us of, not only is the blessedness of God's kingdom fixed, but according to his purpose, 
but also the power and the influence of the kingdom is ongoing despite what you see, despite what it looks like. It is unstoppable, but it's mostly unseen on any large scale. It will eventually permeate all that God desires, and the the earth will be filled with kingdom glory, but it is largely unseen. Most people don't recognize it. Even in Jesus' day, didn't recognize that the kingdom was upon them in terms of its power and the king being on the earth. They missed it utterly. Why? Because we try to look at kingdom work through the grid of human assessment of circumstances. If things are going well, yes, God must be putting blessing on things. When things aren't going well, then God must have taken his blessing off. When things are going well, we can usher in the return of Christ. We're revivalists. When things aren't going well, what happened? God left his throne. I mean, we are back and forth. Jesus has to correct that. And you remember what happened. He was in the synagogue, and there he was teaching on hypocrisy and how Israel had defected, and then this woman bent over, comes in, and he heals her. We saw that last week. Instantly heals her. So kingdom power is in the synagogue, contrasted with hypocrisy of Israel, and Jesus then brings these two parables on the heels of it. The text grammatically indicates that it's a transition and that these parables are sort of the, the, the exclamation point on the events that had just taken place. And so the point we're going to get from this is the church should not be confused. We should not interpret what God is doing through the grid of our own cultural circumstances, national circumstances, or even the global situation. It may look like Christianity is about to be snuffed out at any given time in church history, but no. It may look like we have to help God with gospel influence, but no. We should neither imagine that we can accelerate God's work nor thwart it. We're not to Christianize world cultures in order to usher in the return of Christ. Nor, beloved, are we to fear that wholesale rejection of Christ spells the end of the church's influence in the world. We do not have to fear that we're losing our influence. The only reason that you would lose your influence is if you do not live a holy life or you give up the clarity of the Scriptures. If you hold to the clarity of the Scriptures as an unashamed workman and you strive in the power of the Holy Spirit to live a grace-filled, holy life, the gospel is going forth, even if you don't see its results. You do not need to fear that somehow you're going to lose your voice in the university or at your workplace or in your neighborhood as if somehow you could give yourself a voice in those contexts. God promises to use the scriptures and a holy life, but he uses it the way he wants. Sometimes he hardens entire cultures against it. Jesus is building his church. Gates of hell will not prevail against it. And these two parables are about how ongoing kingdom work eventually influences nations for sure. It shelters them, absolutely. How the ongoing kingdom work of God opens up opportunities for gospel work, yes, just as he promised. And it will eventually bring unimaginable blessing to the entire earth when Jesus comes in all his glory to reign in his kingdom. Yes, that's true. But we must assess it according to God's comments on the kingdom. What is the kingdom like according to God? And the parables teach about how the ongoing kingdom work of God permeates, and it permeates so completely and so powerfully that though nations believe Satan's lies and whole generations reject Christ, sinners are still saved. They're saved one heart at a time through the message of the gospel. And you may may see vast people, groups, and societies rejecting. And you may not see massive numbers revival and, and repentance and faith happening in certain cultures. Yet the work is, it's not only permeating, but it's powerful and it's influential, and it eventually will be so large, so staggering, as, as untold numbers of people from every tongue and tribe and nation come into the kingdom. These two parables then are about the, the penetrating nature of the kingdom and the assimilating quality of it, the blessedness of it, and yet it is to be trusted as God's work. Now you remember the kingdom. 
We've talked about this. I'll just remind you that the disciples had one clear mission when Jesus sent them out. Remember, he sent them out, and they're on their way to Jerusalem, and he had 70 associates of his close disciples, and he sent them out as well. They had one clear mission, to herald the truth about the arrival of the Messiah, to announce him. He is the king of all kings. He is the one whose divine power and heavenly origin were already being revealed in the life and ministry of Jesus while he walked on the earth. That's why they could say the kingdom of God has come upon you. I want you to proclaim the kingdom of God and tell people that the kingdom of God has come upon you. Not because Jesus is setting it up right now in its final form, but he is the king. He's with you. His power is on display. That's kingdom power. You ought to listen up. So to proclaim the kingdom of God is to proclaim its inauguration in Christ. It was to speak about its requirements to be a citizen, right? Repentance and faith. That was their job, just like ours. And to proclaim the the joyful anticipation of its full expression as we wait for Christ's return. So because of those realities, we, we warn sinners of what's to come. Hey, at Jesus' second coming, he's going to bring the full force of divine wrath and fury against all who reject the offer of the kingdom, and he's going to sit on his throne in his earthly kingdom, and he's going to reign over his kingdom of priests, and those who've been redeemed to reign with him will serve him forever. And the scriptures teach that the whole earth will be filled with his glory and his righteousness, Zechariah 14.9. And so Luke loves to use the term the kingdom of God, as I said to you, 32 times and several more in the book of Acts, which he also penned. Jesus himself anticipated his future end-time kingdom, Matthew 6, verse 10. He said, pray this way, your kingdom come, your will be done. Pray that it comes in its fullest expression. And in Matthew 25, what's going to happen when the line is drawn by God as everyone is gathered before the great throne? Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. There is a final expression coming. It's inevitable. It will be here. But when Christ was on the earth and when he was standing in the synagogue and when he spoke these parables, he is the inaugural aspect of the kingdom of God. He's not the fullest expression yet, but there he is. And that's why men struggled, because not everyone believed in him. Here's the king. He says he's the king. He has the power of the kingdom at his disposal, and not everyone believes him. Can you imagine the despair of some in the culture? Oh, well, I guess he must not be God then. I don't know how he does his miraculous things. He keeps saying he's the king, but he's not on a throne. What is this? What is going on here? I mean, it must. is it real? Is it not? What? And they got confused and sometimes hopeless. And the Jews used it as proof that he wasn't who he says he is. People got confused. There was no need, Jesus says, to be confused. Notice what he says here on the heels of humiliating the Jews with this Sabbath day healing and his comments and exposing of them in their hypocrisy. Verse 18 then, so he was saying... What is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a mustard seed, which a man took and threw into his own garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. So after being questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, at one point in Jesus' ministry, he said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor are you going to say, look, here it is or there it is. The kingdom of God, however, is in your midst inaugurally. He said that to them. Look, it's right in front of you. If you miss that, because you're assessing it from a human perspective, you're already blind to some degree. Because you're going to be vulnerable to, oh, here it is over here. Oh, we're ushering it in over here. Oh, social gospel interest. Oh, yeah, people are interested in the kingdom. They like Jesus. When the world speaks well of him, oh, things are cranking. The kingdom must be coming. Do not think about it that way, he said. Don't do that. Don't think about things from your human circumstance perspective. God tells us what the kingdom is like. 
And he says here, there are two things about it. You could call these the growth parables, as they're often called. There are two things about the kingdom, very simply, just teaches us about it in these two descriptions. The first is the kingdom's prevailing power. The kingdom's prevailing power. It will prevail, no matter what it looks like right now. Verse 18, he was saying, what's the kingdom of God like? To what shall I compare it? It's like a mustard seed, which a man took and threw into his own garden. And it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. He quotes uh, Ezekiel in that last section. Now, the point of the imagery here is fairly simple to grasp. The mustard seed, which farmers of the day considered to be the smallest seed, it grows into a tree, or in this case, a shrub, large enough and strong enough for the birds to find needed and permanent shelter. So at once, Jesus' point becomes plain to us. What begins as the smallest of realities, seemingly insignificant, seemingly unimportant, can't do anything, can't overpower anything, isn't going to grow to anything. This is how humans assess things. I mean, we love big things, don't we? We love big ministry, big movements. We love all that. We get so enamored with that. You know, decades and decades ago, when the Billy Graham Association was sending the young evangelist over to Europe, and he was preaching, and there were all these huge crusades, and people were coming. I mean, the Anglican church was dead at, the po- at that point, but Anglicans were pouring into the crusades with, with Dr. Graham, and he was preaching this powerful gospel, and they were pouring in. Were they getting saved? We don't know. But I'll tell you this, someone in the organization wanted to put the unsaved archbishop on the platform with Dr. Graham. And there were pastors, we're talking believing pastors, saved people who were fine with that. Why were they fine with it? Oh, God's doing a move. It's big. The crusades are huge. People are responding. It's a move of God. We love things that are big, don't we? We love that. We get so enamored with that. Absolutely. It's the mob rule. We get excited. Everybody's going in one direction. Let's just follow. We're like sheep. There we go. We don't know what the excitement is, but man, we're in there. And Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones warned the movement and said, look, you cannot put an unbelieving archbishop on the platform representing the gospel being preached. Yeah, but we're going to lose our influence if we don't do that because these Anglicans are pouring in and we want to revive the Anglican church because it's dead. So let's send them in and use this evangelist to do it. How will you know they're converted? Because they came to a crusade? That's nothing. I remember years ago, the Promise Keepers movement. Oh my goodness. I mean, it was like everybody told me it was a move of God, a move of God, a move of God. Hey, were any men encouraged by it? Absolutely. I'm sure of it. Were some of the speakers preaching the word of God? I heard some of the messages. They sure did. But when our church, not this one, but the previous ministry was asked to be involved, and by the way, they asked us to be involved because the church was a church of 10,000. So clearly they wanted the influence of the size of it. When our church was asked to get involved, I called the organization's leadership and said, what's your theology? Tell me your doctrine. Well, I got a mixed bag. It was all over the map. And at one point, they were accepting Catholics as saved, regardless of Catholic theology. And of course, I'm not against Catholics. I'm not against the the reality that Catholics need Christ and many of them believe in Christ unto their salvation. I'm thrilled about that. But I'll tell you this, Catholic doctrine is false doctrine. It always has been. It's a doctrine of works. You cannot get saved in that system without works, human works. Well, that's completely against what the Scriptures teach, that salvation is by faith alone. And so this organization of Promise Keepers was teaching that and and allowing that. And I said, guys, I can't get involved in that. Do you know what they told me? You're not going to be involved in a move of God. What what makes it a move of God? The, The stadium attendance? That's pretty much what it came down to. We love big things. So you can imagine that when Jesus is talking about a kingdom and global righteousness, when the prophets spoke about global righteousness and all this influence, you can imagine that Israel, who didn't want to believe in it, and certainly the pagan nations who wanted to reject it, just flat out said, are you kidding me? That little thing? 
That little guy, Jesus, with a few followers? Are you kidding? That? That's nothing. You're nothing. And so Jesus says, look, it's like the mustard seed. It's the smallest. Nobody considers it significant at all. But that little seed, that little tiny seed, considered at the time the smallest of the seeds, it's not technically the smallest seed of all seeds, but at the time in the agrarian society, this was the smallest, and it was insignificant, didn't seem like it could do much, but it could grow into this sturdy tree that, that could become years and years and years of shelter for, for those that needed it. And that was Jesus' point in using it. It begins as the smallest reality, but it grows into something that provides a permanent place for believers to dwell and rest and find sustenance for their entire life. That's the verbiage used here. The birds found rest. They took up the place that was permanent. They found permanent sustenance. Matthew's parallel text in Matthew 13, 32 says, this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it's larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree that the birds come and nest in its branches. It's, it's full grown at one point and larger than all the other plants. And that's Jesus' point here. What you see as a small kingdom beginning, you may use it as reason not to believe, but you are sadly mistaken because there is a prevailing power with the kingdom of God. So the first parable is all about the kingdom's imperceptible beginnings and small beginnings. And this first parable has a, has a danger by implication. The danger by implication is that if you reject the kingdom of God on the basis that you don't see its dominance or the signs that it's ultimately promised, if you do it on that basis, you are in severe danger because that's not how the kingdom of God works. It's like a mustard seed. It looks small to you, insignificant to cultures. Nations mock it. Everybody thinks it's nothing. Christians are the off-scouring. They're the dregs of the earth. Nobody cares whether this thing is ever going to come about. We always say Jesus is coming, but it doesn't fool any of them as they mock it. Jesus says, know this. Those Jews right there who are more interested in the Sabbath instead of the healing power, and, and yet you see the power. It brought a woman doubled over back to her restored health, and that's the kingdom of God and its power visiting you to teach you something. And if you look at the landscape and say, but nobody else is believing, but it's so small, it's insignificant, I'm going to be part of something that, that's just this little tiny nothing, don't assess it that way, Jesus said. God describes the kingdom. Say, will it, will it finally grow into its full form? Yeah. Revelation 19.15, the kingdom of the world becomes or has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. The kingdom of the world becomes the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. God reigns in Christ. When the Lord is reigning in his earthly kingdom and his glory is filling the earth, the righteous will flourish, Psalm 72, 7 says, and there will be peace. It'll be so massive, it'll be global, and it will overrun all evil so as to make the slice that Satan has had and the puny authority that he's exercised for a few thousand years look like nothing. It's nothing. It's insignificant, puny. It's mere skirmish. Isaiah 54, verse 3, the kingdom of Messiah will spread abroad, he says, to the right and to the left, and her descendants will possess nations and will, will resettle the desolate cities. I mean, everything's coming back to restoration. Everything's coming back to redemption. The whole globe is going to be filled with the glory of Christ. Look for a moment, very quickly, at one prophet, Micah. Micah chapter 4. It's in the minor prophets of your Old Testament. Just look at Micah 4 for a moment. It's right after Jonah. This is amazing. Micah 4, verse 1. It'll come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established 
as the chief of the mountains. It'll be raised above the hills. The peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he'll judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. Can you imagine? Turn on any news network and look at the war-torn lands across this globe. When Christ comes, that will be a distant memory. And the inauguration of the kingdom was when he arrived and he brought kingdom power and then he was resurrected and conquered death for sinners and then he ascended to the right hand of the Father preparing a place for his people and the earth is moving toward the prevailing power of the ultimate expression of his kingdom. You cannot stop it, no matter how puny it may look. Notice verse 3, he'll judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. I love that. Verse 4, each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Though all the peoples walk, each in the name of his God, as for us, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Even unbelief and idolatry is going to end. How rich is that? This parable implies that while the blessedness of Christ's kingdom is already inaugurated through the work of the gospel, entire cultures and nations also will be splashed with its blessings. You know, that's even true today before Christ's fullest expression comes. I mean, as the gospel has spread to nations, even pagan nations have benefited from the way that kingdom power works in the gospel. Why? Because it changes morals. It transforms cultures. People start to live holy lives. Families are restored. Entire communities are strengthened by stronger families, strong communities, strong schools, people who have morals. In this country, while not everyone in this country that was sort of part of the framing of our constitution was a believer, in fact, most were not. While that's true, it is also true that pastors came over from Europe and began to preach the gospel, and many were saved, and some Puritan Christians came, and they colonized, and the gospel went forth, and holy lives went forth. What was the net effect? Your country was morally conservative. Blessings from the inaugural power of the kingdom were splashing on society and lawmaking in this country. It's interesting that uh, Oz Guinness in his book, uh, A Free People's Suicide, where he talks about what's happened in our country. It's a fascinating book, but in there he makes the case that you need two things to run a democracy. No government is perfect until Christ comes, and a benevolent dictatorship under Christ is perfect. Prior to that, even a democracy may be the best form, but it it isn't unassailable. And he demonstrates that you need two things for that to work. One, you have to have laws. You have to have laws to govern because not everybody is conservative. And then secondly, you have to have morals in your conscience. You've got to have the ability to regulate conduct by a conscience that has a conservative moral framework. He said, our country used to have that, and you don't have that anymore. And so laws have to increase as your moral framework dies. That's where we are. But, but what happened with gospel power? It splashed all over this nation and splashed all over other nations. And there have been compassion efforts and grace and gospel goodness and moral conservatism and holy lives that have spread even from our North American territories on through other nations. Even this, this tree that grows to full-grown kingdom greatness, while it's not fully there yet, even it benefits pagan nations because God is always doing his work and his work is more powerful than evil and grace reigns through Christ even though death reigns through sin. The gospel's greater and where sin abounded, grace did abound all the more. 
Even the benefits of gospel power in one nation splash onto the peoples of other nations. Almost like, as Paul mentions in, second, in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 14, where an unbelieving spouse gets the benefits of having a believing spouse splashing on them because the believing spouse is sanctified and the unbelieving spouse is set apart unto God in a special way because of the saved spouse. That is really an amazing reality. And so this is similar this imagery, by the way, of a tree uh, just is carried over, as I said, from Ezekiel the prophet. The Old Testament had all kinds of images like this, not, not the least of which is in Daniel chapter 4. A tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew large, became strong. Its height reached to the sky. It was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful. Its fruit abundant. Food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the sky dwelt in its branches, and all living creatures fed themselves from it. It's the idea of fruitfulness and protection and shelter. This is the kingdom. Regardless of what you see, this is happening. God is moving in this direction inexorably. Benefits and blessedness come from kingdom power. Don't you dare imagine that if things are bad in your culture, that somehow God is not moving with that blessedness. He is. He is. Moral blessing from gospel-rich places spreading out to other places. Tribal areas of the globe filled with nothing but wickedness and death are suddenly blessed for generations by the influence of the gospel. It happens. God does it. He doesn't do it like we expect. So Jesus says, look, the kingdom has prevailing power. And then secondly, and real quick, the kingdom is imperceptible in its influence. Imperceptible in its influence. The kingdom's prevailing power and the kingdom's imperceptible influence. Look at verse 20. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. Look, I don't, I don't think the parable is intending to make technicalities out of the woman and how much she put in, but it was quite common, this language from both the Old and New Testament as to how you made bread. It was quite common to have enough dough to feed massive groups and leaven it with only a little bit. There's the point. The point is, it permeates from even just a little of the yeast's fermenting power. And yet you can't see it. She put it in. That's the emphasis here. The emphasis is not on, on what the woman did um, with the bread. The, the leaven is hidden in the dough, and the leaven did the work. That's the point. It's imperceptible. The leaven disappears into the dough, it works secretly, it works invisibly, and its power is hidden from view. And yet, guess what? In terms of the measurements here in the text, some estimated that if you took this literally, it, it, as, as Jesus, if he were describing a banquet, this would be enough bread for 150 plus people with just one little bit of leaven. The whole thing is permeated. That's the point. You may not see it. You may not perceive it, but it is powerful even if imperceptible in its influence. The kingdom work, as one commentator said, is mysterious, gradual, silently spreading out. That's right. You remember how Jesus described it to Nicodemus? He came there in the middle of the night. He's like, ah, you know. So what do you mean born again, you know, born from above? What are you talking about? I mean, I had nothing to do with my physical birth, so can't go back into my mother's womb and control that decision and be born again that way. I didn't have any control over that. Jesus is like, you're right. You can't. You can't control that, and you can't control being born again because it's the work of the Spirit. And he says there in verses 7 and 8 of John 3, the wind is an illustration of it. The wind blows where it wishes. You, you don't see where the wind comes from or where it goes. You can't see it, but you can see its effects. It blows the trees. Oh, there's wind. And that's the same way it is with the Spirit. You can't see where He's working, when He's working, why He's working, except you can see the evidence. But when it went in and where it goes in and how it works is imperceptible. And this is a reminder. Jesus is saying, step back a moment. Stop imagining that the kingdom is assessed by us based upon what you see around you. Look for evidence of gospel transformation, and that's it. Don't look for whether the culture accepts us. Don't look for whether your, your message is received. Don't look for whether or not 
people attach themselves to the church or whether the social gospel seems to generate more interest on the part of pagans. Don't look at that stuff. Beloved, the megachurch movement is four decades old. Are Christians more holy and rocking the world by our example and message? I don't think so. And yet, guess what? You can go find an entire library of books that wrote about it being a move of God. A move of God. Does God save through such things in spite of us? God's salvation is in spite of us. It's always gracious. You know? He spoke through a donkey once, but he doesn't make donkeys preachers. Just because it happens that he's gracious through our foolishness doesn't, make we, doesn't mean we make a method out of it. No, the point is you shouldn't assess the kingdom by anything around us except are we proclaiming the truth and are we living holy lives that demonstrate the transforming power of the gospel. Whatever else is going on, that is is not to be confused with the imperceptible nature of the way the Spirit is working as the leaven begins to permeate the whole lump. And one day, it will be enough to feed all the nations of God's people who are in the kingdom. It will be enough to sustain them. It is imperceptible influence. So be careful what you conclude Politics, sociology, cultural reform campaigns are not the work of local assemblies, the church. They're not. When we attempt that, we lose our power. The East doesn't work in that way. It seems to, too slow for many people. It's just too slow. And so we take something to hasten the leaven along and we, in the end, end up hindering it. This is not good, beloved. Jesus says the kingdom is like leaven. And the leaven is put in. And it's a small amount compared to what ends up coming out the other end. But, man, the, the feast that the Lord provides through the imperceptible influence of His gospel power in one place, you cannot... You cannot quantify it, nor should you assess whether it's ongoing simply because of what you see around you, nor should you get too excited just because a crowd shows up. Don't, don't do that. Of course, of course, at Grace Emmanuel, we want to see people filling up the seats in ministry, but are we under any illusion that everyone who comes to our church is a believer? Are we under any illusion that Everyone who comes here is just so passionate for the gospel, they have to hear God's word. No. I have wearied over the last couple of decades at this assumption that we have that if it's big, it's God. And I'm not suggesting it should be small because then what what would I be doing? I'd be doing the same thing, contriving something small. God works. He works His way. I'm just looking for the evidence of the Spirit of God. That's it. I'm not, I'm not equating that with how many people say they're interested. I'm not interested in that at all. My flesh would want to go there, but this is Jesus' point. Don't think of the kingdom based upon human understanding of such things where your fears are vulnerable and your assumptions are vulnerable and your pride is vulnerable. Don't do that. The kingdom has prevailing power. It will be enough to sustain everyone who comes into it. But just because it has small beginnings doesn't mean it isn't going to absolutely overrun this globe with Christ reigning and the power of the gospel. It's going to overrun what has been. And I can, I can assure you that though Satan is called in Ephesians the prince of the power of the air, he is indeed a defeated prince. His throne of royalty is toppled. And this little season in eternity, of his little kingdom, small k, will be nothing but a faded memory swallowed up in the glory of Christ when the kingdom comes in in its fullest expression. And any unbeliever who wants to say that Jesus isn't who he says he is because it's just a puny little movement has missed the kingdom. And any Christian who is threatened by someone mocking us, where is the promise of his coming? You shouldn't be be threatened by that at all. You should expect certain seasons of that. 
God sometimes does explode the gospel into a culture, just as he did in the weeks and months on the heels of Jesus' resurrection. Other times, almost immediately even on the heels of that, massive persecution and darkness can fall over entire lands for millennia. But God is doing his work, and it will prevail. Make no mistake. And God is doing his work. It's imperceptible in its influence, but it is influencing. And it's so powerful and so permeating that when it does transform, it transforms entire lives. It transforms your mind, your heart, one moment in the gospel at a time, one moment of sanctification by the Spirit's power at a time, and it permeates your life. It changes your family. It changes your your heritage, your legacy. It changes the way you think about society, about morals, about laws. It changes the way you live in your community, your neighborhood. It changes what God does in a family long-term. Whole entire families, which were pagan for generations, one person gets saved, sometimes even a young person at a youth rally like we had this last week, and suddenly, 20 years later, multiple family members are in Christ, and an entire legacy is shifted. You didn't see it coming. I didn't see it coming, but it came. And it's unstoppable in its influence. Absolutely unstoppable. We don't need to lose hope. And we don't need to wonder. And we don't need to help the gospel along. And we don't need to fear when nobody's believing. We just need to know that the kingdom is like a little mustard seed in its beginning. And its end is fully sustaining, sturdy, and able to feed and bring fruit and shade and shelter to all who come under it, no matter what it looks like now. And its influence permeates. It permeates one heart at a time, and it is so rich and so powerful that no matter what you see in your culture around you, God is still working. And he's working in his way, and it will not be stopped. One day, when Jesus Christ rules and reigns, we'll trace all those lines, how he worked. But don't run the risk of sitting on the sidelines because you think hope is gone, everybody's rejecting or getting off the sidelines and helping God along with revival because you, you think that size and influence and, and uh, cultural uh, acceptability means that we're on the verge of something. No. I'll tell you, we have fallen prey to that in the church in America. Sometimes we, we just like the way, our way of life, and there were great gospel seasons in this country, and There are fewer of those great gospel seasons in this country as the culture slides further and further away from the truth. And there's a tendency in your heart to get all fearful and want to go back to the glory days. No, no, no. These are the glory days. Every day for the gospel is a glory day. And we should not forget that. We should rise every day in hope and proclaim and live a holy life, transforming power of the gospel. Let God do his work. Let the leaven do its work, knowing full well that when Christ comes, It will be sturdy. It will provide all that's necessary. We will see how it splashed on and blessed other nations and opened up opportunities to the gospel. And we will see that its influence was indeed unstoppable and always moving. Isn't that encouraging? Bow with me. Lord, thank you.